Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Juvenile Court Judge Ernestine Gray of New Orleans. Judge Gray is also currently serving as a co-chair of the Criminal Justice Section's Juvenile Justice Committee and is a member of the Section's Juvenile Justice Standards Task Force. Judge Gray, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, we really appreciate you giving us your time. For our listeners, Judge Gray was recently featured in a Washington Post article called One Judge's Tough Approach to Foster Care, It's Only for the Really Extreme Cases. And this was released in November of 2019. So if you're interested in going back and reading it, that's where you can find it. But there were several things that were brought up in this article that are going to kind of overlap with our conversation today. And that is going to center around the intersection of the juvenile justice system and foster care. And so in the article, Judge Gray takes the position of it's only for really extreme cases, as the title says. So Judge Gray, let's begin with you explaining to our listeners why this is your approach. Well, I think my approach is consistent with what the law says. The law says that when we intervene with families, we're only supposed to intervene when it's absolutely necessary for their safety and protection. And so we're supposed to make reasonable efforts to make sure we're not unnecessarily separating children from their families. And I believe my position is consistent with the law. And so I require that we are paying close attention to that and that we are not unnecessarily taking children and placing them in foster care. Because while foster care is needed for some families, it's not for all families. And part of the reason for that is we need to recognize that when children are separated from their families, and even though the situations are not perfect, there's trauma that the children suffer because, merely because they're separated from their family. And so we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to minimize that trauma because research shows that that trauma plays out in many ways in the rest of their lives. So it's important to try not to traumatize children by what we're doing. Right. And as we look at the consequences of this trauma that you were beginning to mention the statistics, there was a statistic referenced in this article from a study conducted by the University of Chicago that stated that children removed from their families and placed into foster care, quote, have poorer outcomes in education, employment, housing, and early pregnancy. By 17, more than half will have been arrested, jailed, or convicted. So Judge Gray, can you elaborate on this statistic? Emily, I think what we know and what I've seen is that is absolutely correct. Not sure that more than half, but a lot of children leave, even while they're in foster care, they get um, sucked into, is the word I'm going to use, but they get caught up in the juvenile justice system. So, and many times, unfortunately, the way that happens is they're in a placement and in the placement, they have trouble adjusting to the rules. They may get in conflict with other young people who are in the placement, or they have interactions with staff, which then the staff believe that the only appropriate thing that they can do is call the police. And so in connection with their placement, 
in foster care, they pick up a delinquency case. And so they're caught up in the delinquency side. We also know that because many of these children, unfortunately, move many times while they're in foster care, and that move requires them to change schools, although the law has changed, it says they really shouldn't have to. But many times, the distance between their placement and the school that they need to go to is too far. And so they have to change schools. And there is research that says every time they change schools, there is a corresponding loss in their educational achievement. We also know that when children age out of foster care, and we haven't done a really good job of getting them the skills they need to become independent, we haven't addressed some of their issues, like some of their mental health issues. They don't have housing, and so many of them end up in mental institutions, they end up being incarcerated, and they end up homeless. And we know that that is documented very well in the research that has been done. And so these are the consequences of having children in foster care and our inability to appropriately address their needs and address the trauma that they've suffered. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned in your introduction, your work in juvenile justice extends beyond the courtroom. You're currently serving on the criminal justice section's juvenile justice committee as a co-chair, and you're also serving as a member of the Juvenile Justice Standards Task Force. And additionally, you're serving on the National Council of Juvenile Court Judges, and they're all examining these issues. So in your work outside of the courtroom and working with these different groups, what have you been finding can be done to decrease the trauma for children? Well, I think what we all recognize is that it requires a concerted effort, not just by what people might call the stakeholders in the criminal or juvenile justice system. And by that, I mean more than the judges, more than the, the Department of Juvenile Services, more than the Department of Child Services, but it also requires the commitment of community agencies, local community service providers, education, mental health, substance abuse. What we know about the families who present to the court, who ultimately get to court, is that they have many issues that many times have gone unaddressed for long periods of time. And that when we intervene, if we do not try to address those, we won't be successful in putting the family in a better place to be able to provide the appropriate care for their children. And so the educational system and all the other service providers really need to work closely with together to address those needs. And I think one of the things we, a lot of us are holding out for the future is the Family First Act which requires the department to now work really hard to provide services to prevent children from coming into care. And if the agency is going to be successful in that, that means that the entities that I talked about, education, mental health, substance abuse, they've really got to come to the table as well as local communities to ensure that services are available in the communities so families can take advantage of those. And they don't have to wait till they're really stressed out and come to the attention of someone who believes the only action that they can take at that moment is to take the children from the family and put them in foster care. Yeah, I really appreciate that you're challenging the system in a way and saying that, you know, it's not necessarily the right solution to just remove them. That's not a Band-Aid that's going to fix the problem. And as you just mentioned, all these different parties that have to come together to really address the real problems because... It looks like even though the system may be well-intentioned in trying to make sure that the children are safe, it's 
creating a whole other set of problems. And so we need to take a step back and so, examine those as you were just talking about. You make a good point. So this is not to say that the foster, this is not to demonize the foster care system. There will obviously be times when children will necessarily have to be placed in foster care because there is no other way to ensure their safety. But what I always caution people to remember too is that foster care is not really a panacea either because children die in foster care, children get hurt in foster care, just like they do in biological families. And so while we need it, that's again the reason to make sure we're only doing it when we absolutely have to because it is not a perfect system either, but it is one that we must have, but we need to make sure we're only using it for those cases where it is absolutely necessary and that we do things that help families better develop their skills in order to be able to provide the appropriate care for their children outside of the foster care system. The other thing is the foster care system is not cheap. And so when we're strapped with resources and the, you know, to figure out how best to use those, uh, it's probably a lot cheaper if we would provide the services to the family rather than, you know, for paying foster care, because it is really expensive. Some children are in foster care and they have to be placed in specialized facilities like residential treatment facilities. And so those are more expensive. And for those children who need to be there, they, those systems have to exist. But we need to be careful about making sure that the children who go are the ones who need to go and that in fact the end product is going to be one that's beneficial both to the child in the future and to communities in which they're going to live. Yeah and again going back to the trauma that you speak of I just want to take a moment to share a personal anecdote I hope this doesn't derail us too much, but I, I just think for our listeners and as these different parties consider what's best for the children, I've been able to volunteer with a few foster care supporting organizations and one was where we worked to put together these bags for children that have been removed from their home and they're called sweet cases where we put together the essentials because often these children are just pulling together whatever they can find quickly and throwing it into a trash bag. And that's what's going with them as they've been urgently removed from their home. And I just, I just wanted to take a moment to emphasize that trauma that you're speaking of and help all of us put ourselves in that position again and really make it feel a little bit more real. Because sometimes as we talk about these things, it can feel so inaccessible if we're removed from that situation. But I really appreciate one thing from your that was featured in your article is that you've got books and teddy bears all over your office to, to try and help these children cope with that trauma. So it's just a side note. I don't mean to get too far off on a tangent, but I, I really appreciate how seriously you take that element of trauma for these children in this situation. So thank you, Emily. I would, I would say, though, that I, I would like to make this point. So we always we quite often talk about what the average citizen can do, how they can help make a difference in the work. And so in the beginning, I talked about my belief that it's not just those of us who are on a daily ba day basis in quarter in the child welfare system. Everyday, ordinary citizens can make an impact. So the sweet cases that you talked about is one way. I've also been involved with the National CASA organization. People can volunteer to become a CASA. They can be a mentor. They can provide books to the court. They can provide teddy bears to a court. There are a lot of ways that people can help. 
and you'd be surprised how a small thing can make a difference. It is amazing to watch the two-year-olds or the three-year-olds who come in my court and we have the bookshelves that they can reach and they come and ask for a book and they go through the books and they pick two or three. It is really a rewarding experience to see them do that and to know that they're walking out with something that I hope makes them feel better by having been here on that particular day. And people can help in those kinds of ways all the time, every Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Okay, so I'll bring us back to the broader subject of juvenile justice. We mentioned that there's a CJS task force working to evaluate and update the juvenile justice standards. Before we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about the parties participating in this task force and when we can look forward to seeing these updates and these standards? There's a diverse group of people participating. So we have prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges from around the country. We have educators. We have a person who is running a clinical program at one of the universities who's on the task force. We have a representative from OJJDP on the task force. So it is a diverse group of people. Unfortunately, I think that when we will see the final product is some ways down the road. And the reason for that is this is a huge document. It was produced more than 40 years ago by 22 groups of people. So it is huge undertaking to talk about revising it. And so what we're doing is we're taking it piece by piece, really trying to update it. And largely the updates are based on the more recent research on the adolescent brain. What we're finding is that many of the principles and ideas that are in the standards are are still very relevant and good, but we just need to overlay that new information about adolescent development that I think will make a difference. And so we're working chapter by chapter on the standards with the idea that as we finish a chapter, we'll send it to the criminal justice section for their approval. If they approve it, then we will send it on to the House of Delegates and the board. And so it is going to be done in what would seem like a piecemeal fashion, but we believe that's better than waiting till we get all of the volumes finished and then try to go through all of the volumes in a day or a day and a half or two days. And so we think doing it in pieces will make it easier for people to digest and understand. Yeah, that does seem like it'll chip away at least at some of the initiatives that'll want to be put forward. Because as I understand it, the standards are meant to help affect policy and affect change. Correct. Correct. Right. And let me just ask one other follow-up question to you, Judge Gray. I know you're looking at wrapping up your formal career in the juvenile justice system. Is there anything that you, and what I mean by that is retirement. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes, that big R, the big R word. (laughs) Yes. So, and as you look toward retirement and what you've seen in your experience, if there was one or two things that you would like to see be the highest priority of addressing in the juvenile justice system to make it serve its true purpose better, what would those be? (laughs) Oh, that's a tough question. What, what would that (laughs) be? So I I guess I would start by saying, so in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of information to come out about the adolescent brain and how that should impact the work we do. And so I would 
want people to really pay attention to that research and then based on the research make modifications in what we do in terms of for example just a couple of things like when children are arrested we'll go to the juvenile justice side when they're arrested we should as quickly as possible resolve those cases you know we know that young people their attention span is really short and so if there's a long time between the arrest and the ultimate resolution of the case, they forget why they're here. And so I would hope that we will figure out ways to really speed up the process with deliberation and determination to develop programs that really address the trauma that children are experiencing and help them with socialization and develop the skills that are necessary for them to become productive adults. And you know, one of the things that I think we don't do a good job of is either in the juvenile justice system or in child welfare, pay enough attention to their education. One of the things that is critically important to me is having children leave particularly the child welfare system with as good an education as they can get. And it's not enough for us to just do the same that the parents might have done. I'm disappointed that we, in my opinion, don't challenge the young people to make good grades, to really participate in their high school so that they can get have a college application that really represents a well-rounded student. And so the assumption, I think, many times is foster children can't do, and I push against that all the time, and I think everybody needs to do that. Foster children are not any less capable because they're foster children. The foster care is where they are, it's not who they are. And so really paying attention to their education and giving them the skills that they need to become productive adults. That's how we're gonna make a difference. If we are just marking time and turning out young people who are gonna be just like their parents, which many times is, is very good, but if they're not gonna be, you know, have the skills and the educational level higher than their parents, then we've failed. Unfortunately, for many of the children who are in foster care, their parents didn't get a good quality education. Many of them have not graduated from college, some of them not high school. And so if we don't do a better job with these young people on that, they may end up being the same kind of parents who don't have the skills or the ability to provide a decent living for their children. And so I think it's important that we work on education, no matter which system they're in. Thank you so much, Judge Gray. I really appreciate you looking outside of the system for those solutions as well, because systems can't be the cure-all. So I- It, it takes people. Yeah. People. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so finally, for anyone listening, and this will probably overlap with what we were talking about before this question, but for anyone listening that wants to get more involved in addressing the problems of foster care and the correlation with the juvenile justice system, what would you say to them? I would say go in your local communities, find out the programs that work with young people. And in most communities that I'm aware of, there are plethora of programs that talk about working with children at risk. Find a program, find a school, who needs mentors for their school and just say, I'm here, I'm available, and I'm willing to help. And my help can include things like one-on-one -on -one with a child. I can provide resources for the classroom. I can provide resources for you at your community center through churches. There are lots of ways people can help. And don't be afraid to just say, I want to help. You'll be surprised how many ways you can help if you just let people know you're available and willing. Well, you've given us so much and we really appreciate that and look forward to 
seeing the work you continue to do in your retirement. Looks like you won't be slowing down too much, even though you might not be going to the courtroom every day. <laughs> That's my plan. <laughs> well, I want to still be active in the field. That's great. Okay. Well, maybe we'll talk to you again about this in the future. So I'm sure we'll need to revisit this topic. Of course, we just got ourselves a nice introduction to the potential issues and beginning the conversation here. So thank you again for your time, Judge Gray. Thank you. And I look forward to our next conversation. Great. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.